Question number one. What does God's word say about tattoos and piercings? Good, bad, okay. <laughs> so, Mr. I don't have any tattoos. What do you, what do you, you In Leviticus, there's a verse, and it talks, okay, I have tattoos, just to start that off. Um, yeah, there's a verse that says, not to mark yourself for foreign gods. Um, and it also says not to pierce yourself. And that reference of that verse is talking about pagan worship ceremonies, first off. Um, and then when you look into the book of Hebrews, it talks about how we have been put under a new covenant by God. Uh, the old covenant was a covenant established by God to um, the Israelites, the people of God. And it followed certain sets of rules. And in Leviticus, when it talks about that tattooing and stuff, is referring first to tattooing yourself or piercing yourself in an act of worship towards some other god, which obviously God doesn't want you to worship any other god in any way. And also, it's laid out as part of the Old Covenant. So if you look into the book of Hebrews, it talks about um, acts of worship and how we're under the New Covenant and how uh, the Old Covenant has passed away. So the New Covenant is the covenant of... of uh, Jesus Christ and his blood and his death and his resurrection, which frees us. And so, some people might argue with me, but I don't think that God has a problem with tattoos or piercings. <laughs> pretty, pretty good answer. Oh, yeah. I have one that answer the question. <laughs> Just as a, a blanket verse, really, for anything, um, the Bible also says that whatever we do, whether in word or deed, is to glorify God and give thanks to him. So, you can get tattoos and piercings. Um, as you say, it's not really a big problem. Um, as long as, of course, that it glorifies God and you're good with And there's no condemnation in Christ. That is true. That is true. Okay, next question. If God says that man and woman are created equal, why does it seem that in the Bible and in everyday life, women have the lesser, thankless jobs and responsibilities? <coughs> Give it to the woman. <laughs> I can take that one. You know, fight for your rights. Party. <laughs> Well, great question. Um, can I uh, read it, though? Yeah. Because it seems like it was a little... Okay. So, yeah, it is true that um, God has created men and women equal, and you can find that in Colossians 3.28. Um, and the second part of the question is... lesser thankless jobs and responsibilities. Um, husbands, but equally um, our husbands are to serve us as well. 
and before serving husbands and wives, we're um, called to serve Christ first.
tons of women that were flocking to Jesus and to his disciples. And that was kind of catalyzing a lot of what happened throughout uh, the, the revival that we saw in the early church. It was, it was kind of fueled by women. And I, I would say, I think that was your third thought probably. Yeah, the women that were in the church as well. That's well, okay, that too. And then, um, you know, like look at the prominence the Bible gives to women. The Bible, the Bible credits like the discovery of the empty tomb to women, you know. These prominent keys of our faith in the Bible attributed them to women. So and that just, would be incomplete without women. And the If at all you guys don't feel that a question is being answered, please say something, because the whole point of question and answer is to answer the question. So if you don't feel like you're getting an adequate answer out of it, please say something. So this is a pretty good one. This one even comes with verses. Um, if we are dead spiritually, and if God hardens people's hearts, then where does our choice come in? How can a dead man choose life? And the references on here is Ephesians 1. 4 through 5. Someone want to read that one real quick? Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. I got it. I got it. Okay. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Okay, so it says, Just as he has chosen us, he, before the foundation of the world, just as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons to Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. As for you, you were dead in your transgression, transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That was Ephesians 2.1, um, Romans 8.29. For those, who, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 9.15-16. 15-16. Okay. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I, will, I have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Okay, so the question again is, if we are dead spiritually, and if God hardens people's hearts, then where does our choice come in? How can a dead man choose life? Okay. Well, it's, it's kind of like this. Um, I can't see you guys. This is crazy. Uh, what does it mean to be predestined? It means to be somebody that was chosen, right? And this is really cool. If you look at 2 Peter 3, verse uh, 9 specifically, it says that God is not willing that anyone should perish. Not one. Not a single one. Isn't that cool? He's not willing that any should perish. So how many people did God choose? He, he wants all of us to come to Christ, right? He wants every single human being to come to himself. That's why it says in Philippians 2, 11, that every knee will bow to his name. Now here's the thing, that's his desire, that he's not going to violate my free will. And what, what blows my mind is a lot of times when we read about choice, people think, well, if God chooses, then I have no choice. Or if I cho choose, then God has no choice, right? People see the argument that way. 
And this really blows my mind. I, most of you guys know Erin. She's at home tonight because Eliana's just having a hard week. And so she didn't want to bring her. But I married Erin six and a half years ago now. Okay? Who chose to marry who? Both of us, right? I mean, Russ actually married us, so he remembers this very well. But I had to choose to marry her, and she had to choose to marry me. See, this was going both ways. So, and God, God, when he chooses me, he does not violate my free choice. And I am dead spiritually without him. And so this is what's interesting, is God begins to draw me with his Holy Spirit. The Bible tells me that, right? So even though I'm dead spiritually, his Holy Spirit starts to draw me. And it says it's his kindness that draws me to repentance. It's not fear. It's not being scared of hell or something like that. It's... It's His kindness. And so what happens is as God shows me His love through His Holy Spirit, He starts to soften my heart and to draw me to a point where I can choose after, after He has already chosen, right? But see, when in this thing, when He says He's not willing that any should perish, see, He's not excluding. In John 12, He says He draws all men to Himself, every single one. So see, there's no one that He does not desire to come to Himself. Is that good? And you can think of it like this. A lot of people think about predestination, did God know beforehand that I would become a Christian later, that I would become his child later, right? Now here's the deal. God is outside of time. And you guys say physics, time is a physical constraint. Right? God is outside of that. If he wasn't outside of that, he wouldn't be God. Now here's the deal. God sees the past, the present, and the future as one event. Does that make sense? So in my mind, like something in the future hasn't yet happened, and something in the past already happened. But in God's mind, it's all simultaneous. It's like if I'm in the caboose of a train looking forward towards the engine, but God is on the side looking at the whole thing all at once. So my birth, my decision, and my death, he sees simultaneously, even though I see it progressively. Does that make sense? So we, we would use the word like predestination because that's how humans see it, but in God's mind and in God's eye, it's happening simultaneous with my choice. Does that make sense? So his sovereignty is completely there, and at the same time my choice is completely there. This is how I came to terms with the idea of predestination. Uh, it can be argued all over the place, and it's fun to debate sometimes. Uh, but it really is, is a mute point, because let's say God does, in fact, know who's going to be Christian, and say he chose other people and not others, although they already went through that. But the point is, we don't know, right? We're not outside of time. We, we don't know if uh, we're going to become a Christian, or who is going to become a Christian in the future. And we still have to make the choice, and we still have to live in progressing time, where we, we make choices one at a time. So whether or not God knows, we don't know. And the important thing is that we still have to make a choice, and we still have to be reconciled with God. Our own, our own uh, free will. Good answer. Mm-hmm. All right, here's another one that I believe kind of goes along with choice too. If salvation came through Jesus' death, then wouldn't his resurrection have fulfilled that? In other words, what was the point of Christ's resurrection and its relation to his sacrificial death? If Christ knew he would come back, was his death really such a sacrifice? I have struggled with this one too because I like to put myself in that situation. It's like, oh well, you know, he had, you know, one really bad day. You know, like is that really that bad? Um, but here's the thing: when Jesus was on the cross, he bore the sins of the world. So all of my sins, all of Riley's sins, all of Henny's sins, everybody's sins were put onto Christ. And he was responsible for him. Now, he is God's son. And God can have nothing to do with sin. And God turned his back on Jesus Christ. 
Now, I don't know if you guys have a good relationship with your dad, but I really do. And if my dad was just like, I'm done with you, and turned away, it would kill me. Like, there's no way that I could handle that. And so, I think that that is so much more of what he went through for us than actually dying on the cross. Um, and, I mean, he's, he left his glory in heaven. Um, like, could you imagine the most rich person that's just, like, living high on hogs all of a sudden going into extreme poverty? Like, Jesus says to the disciples that the foxes have a place to live, but I don't have one. And, like, he left everything for us and came here, and then he died knowing full well that God would turn his back and wouldn't even look at him. Like, that's, that's where the sacrifice comes from, I think, so. Paul, Paul also, I was going to say, Paul also distinguishes. He says that his death gave us justification, and his resurrection gave us life. So he kind of mentions the two different things. And if you read anywhere in the Old Testament, blood was required. So, like, if you read through Leviticus, you just go blood after blood after blood. Like, blood is needed. And so his sacrifice was needed because blood was also needed. And his resurrection was needed because um, he conquered death, which had never been done before. Yeah, and that in such a way. No, I'm just going to admit that that was my question. <laughs> Um, this is something that I've also dealt with, so I thought. But, um, I, and, like, I've, I've had lots of things, but I just wanted to share the verse that, <laughs> I wanted to share the verse that um, Nate had referenced to you, that I just recently stumbled upon and it really helped me with this issue. Uh, it's Romans 5.10, it says, For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So for me, his death was our reconciliation with God, his power over death and his resurrection was also our power to be once again reunited with God after that reconciliation. But because of his power of death, we now have power of death. And we're saved through his death. We're given life, as he said, through um, eternal life through his resurrection. Alright, we'll keep cruising through these questions. If you agree that we live under the new covenant and that homosexuality is mentioned in Leviticus too, and again in Romans, could the sin in Romans be lust and not homosexuality because of how it is worded? What's the backup that makes it clear it's not a sin? Um, I, I'll let other people go more into details of what kind of verses and think about and so forth. But I just wanted to uh, mention a, another cultural thing um, that has really helped me in this deal with homosexuality. Um, and there's really no escaping the fact that homosexuality is a sin. Um, in the Bible. It's pretty obvious and it's pretty clear. However, something we need to remember is that back in the day, both in the time of the New and the Old Testament, homosexuality was an act. It was not an identity. It was not a lifestyle. Through time, somehow, up until modern days, there were probably multiple reasons. Um, it has become an identity. People refer to themselves as homosexuals. It's not just an act. Um, it's not just... It says homosexuality, it means the act of homosexuality, of the actual sex act. But of course, now it's, it's like an identity. People identify with it. And so when they see that in the Bible that homosexuality is a sin, they assume that they are a sin, you know, their lifestyle is a sin. So it's something to keep remember that um, it's not about how you act or the way you are, it was just talking about the actual act. So something to keep in mind. Yeah, something to, to keep in mind um, with sexual sin of any type 
is the fact that to be tempted is not a sin. Uh, like, if you're tempted to act upon something and you don't act upon that, you're not sinning. Whether that is a, a homosexual sexual act or a heterosexual one, if you're tempted and you don't act, you're not sinning. It's what you do with that temptation, that desire. If you put it for the cross and you, you give it to God, bit, or if you act on it and you go through with it, then that's when it becomes a sin. And in Romans 12, it very clearly states what we are to do um, with our bodies. And it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so, in that manner, if if we're doing something with our, our bodies that's not glorifying to God, whether that be committing sexual acts of any sort, uh, we're not glorifying God. And our, where am I? Uh, our spiritual act of worship is offering our bodies to God. And so to do so pleasingly, putting down all acts of sexual immorality, no matter in what form those are, are what we're called to do as Christians. I'd say it's not just Romans either that mentions that. It's 1 Corinthians 6, and it's real, it is real clear. And the, the thing that I think we need to come to the realization of is that if God made me, He knows how I work. And if He knows how I work, and He says, He promises that He came to give me abundant life, or life to its fullness. If I really believe that, <clears throat> that He knows me and He wants to give me life to the fullest, then living life His way is going to bring me the most joy. That's true. And, and, and that's what God promised me. And if He says that X is wrong, then I know He isn't just saying that because He wants to be a jerk. But He's saying that for my own good. Because there are consequences associated with X that are just physical realities of the universe. Honestly, if I jump off a cliff, no matter how much I love jumping off cliffs, I get killed. And that doesn't make God a mean God. That just makes gravity real. Does that make sense? And there are real issues about life. And, and honestly, like, it's not very politically correct, but go through all, I mean, I would challenge you, and if you want, talk to me, I'll give you a lot of resources. You can go through all the, the peer-reviewed journals of, like, human sexuality and neuropsychology and all this that really get into detail of a lot of the dangers of this lifestyle, even though it's not politically correct to talk about it, and not just physical, but emotional. That, that really is dangerous. But here's what I want to say. Like, and this is the response that we need to have, is people that, that struggle with this issue, um, God loves just as much as any other human being on the face of this planet. And Christians have been really bad at showing that. You know, They've been kind of uh, overboard on talking about the sin issue, and really underboard talking about the love issue. And, and I have friends that are gay, and I will hug them, and I will love them, and I will go out to coffee, and go out to lunch with them. In fact, I've been talking to one of them this week multiple times, you know. And um, the issue is, is for Christ, we need to show love like he showed us love. And in God's mind, sin is sin, right? Like, sometimes we can say, this sin is really bad, but God's okay with me gossiping. You know, is that really the case? Like, sin is sin. We're all sinners, you know. Every one of us. And we all need God's grace equally. And so for me not to show somebody else love would be a pretty bad thing. Um, I just want to add one more thing. Um, you don't hear this very often, but um, I have, I grew up with a couple of friends that really struggled with homosexual, homosexuality in general. 
And when they came out and they can like confessed it to us as a group of friends, we were able to pray with them and like literally now like they they don't have that like that's not like I up until that point I questioned whether or not it was a choice or if it was um, just the way people were born. And I do think that some people have natural like have normal have tendencies towards homosexuality just like anybody can have natural tendencies towards any kind of sin. Um, but like with the friends that I've had, like that's, it's not an issue anymore. Like God's completely set them free. And God can, like God's, through Jesus we have freedom from all sin. And um, it just, I think like, that's kind of not the right thing to say. Like not politically correct to say either, but I have friends that were homosexuals and they're not anymore. And I have friends that are like, Date, like they're dating and they're planning on getting married and they're just completely free from that sin and so like that's just like a living testimony that um, that God can set you free so that you can live a life the way He designed you to live a life. Okay, another question: How do you fix the problem with false Christians? And I kind of I think right here you kind of almost need to start with a definition of false Christians because I believe that they're the people that actually act like Christians, they look like normal Christians, but the way they're living their lives reflect nothing of a relationship with God. It reflects nothing of reflecting who Christ is. Um, but then there's also true, genuine Christians that still fall into sin um, here and there. And I I think sometimes uh, people will, will choose that as kind of a false Christian, that some people like to see Christians as people that never fail, that they're completely perfect. Um, but as Christians, we're still human, and God is working through us and working on us to continue to drive us more towards the reflection of who Christ is. And I think it's kind of a question and an answer all in itself. All in itself, you can't fix a problem with something that's already broken. Um, and the Bible tells us that God will bring everything into the light; that He'll reveal everything to us. And um, people that try to live a life that is reflecting God but they're genuinely not. It'll all come out. It'll all be brought into the light. And God desires for those people to be drawn into Him for a relationship and just so that they can live a whole and pure life and not try to live a life that they want people to think they're living. Um, but God will continue to draw people towards Him and draw Him towards a life that reflects Him. So. Um. Um, something else I wanted to add too is that I think to fix the problem with um, false Christians and just hypocrisy in general as Christians is start with yourself, which sounds easy, but it's not. If you see a Christian that's not living like they should be, examine yourself first. Um, I know, like growing up for me, and even in college so far, like I see people all the time that claim to be Christians. Um, but their lives just don't show it, and it's obvious when you're living a life surrendered to Christ, and that when you're actually a Christian, you have um, the fruits of the Spirit, like it talks about in Galatians, flowing out of you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. You are showing love in all of your actions, and um, sometimes I think when you notice things about other people, you got to really look at yourself first, because it's probably something that's an issue in yourself, too. And... <laughs> Um, and then the other thing uh, that I would say is that, um, and this is kind of harsh too, <laughs> I feel like I'm being really 
first. But the other thing I would say is that who are you to judge whether or not something is real in someone else's life? I mean, it's definitely, as Christians, we need to challenge each other if you see things that aren't reflecting Christ in each other's lives. But, um, it, like, I think sometimes as Christians, too, we're too quick to judge whether or not someone really has a relationship with Christ before we stop and, and, um, and really talk to them. And it's not our job to judge where people's hearts are at. That's God's. And... There are people, probably even in this room, who look, act, and um, and think like they're a Christian, and they believe that they're a Christian, but really their relationship with God, there is no real substance to it, and there's no real relationship there, even though they look like they have all the qualities of a Christian, and that won't be reconciled until, until we're in heaven. And so, really, like I think that's kind of a question just to challenge all of ourselves with. Can I just have one verse? Just one verse. Okay, one verse. Um, that just talked about just the person himself. Um, it's all over the place. But one time I know she found in Timothy. Colossians 1.6, it says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So that just comes to show, starts for yourself, Continue to just be rooted in him, strengthen yourself in him as you yourself, you know, just, and then, you know, you will be able to discern what is, you know, what this world brings to you, and you will be able to just start from yourself and what you think, and this is your, this is your foundation, your root, so, that's it. Alright, this is going to get one answer. Um, The question is, how do you keep selfishness, selfishness from interfering with your fellowship with God? Who wants this on? Alright. Hey, well, I might throw a little twist on that because I feel like you should be selfish with your fellowship with God. Because fellowshipping with God is an amazingly great thing. So, go for it. I mean, fellowship with Him as much as possible. and But don't limit it to just yourself, you know? I can go meet up with Riley and fellowship with God, and like that is amazing, but I can also sit in my class and have fellowship with God and be selfish with it. Take as much time as you want with God. He doesn't care how much time he spends with you. Alright, next question. If God is so loving, then why is there so much evil, pain, and suffering? Um, I think one thing to look at with this is that um, God is not the only force at work in the world. There is there's God's will, um, His perfect will. There's um, natural law, which is just like the laws of the universe, how He created it. Then there's man's will, and um, and then there's Satan's will. And all four of these are playing at, at at one time in the earth, and they affect each thing, different events that are going on. So, like, if, you know, natural causes of, like, just the way the universe is created are going to cause pain and suffering. Like, we can't prevent hurricanes from happening. We can't prevent things like that from happening. Then you have natural law, which is, like, people are going to get hurt, people are going to die, and that's just kind of how life goes. And, like, we can't really prevent that. And if it was a perfect world with just God's will in place, then these other things wouldn't be a factor. But because um, 
because it's not perfect and because all these other things are at work just by the very fabric of how the universe is and how like God made it, then and then we have these other things that play in the role that God uses to work out to for the good of him and to teach us things too. Alright, I'm gonna keep this under a minute. I'll do my best. This is the classic religious question, so um, I, I think every question, Christian should be um, armored with an answer to this, so please pay attention. Um, this is, the reason there's evil in the world is because God loves us, and let me explain a little bit because it doesn't seem right. Um, God allowed us to have free will and allowed us to reject his love and allow sin to enter the world through our own selfishness and greed. And this, the reason for this is because it had to be done. In order for there to be love with God, there had to be not love with God, right? There had to be separation from God in order for us to have a relationship. Otherwise, we would be forced into loving God, and we would just be little robots, and that love would not be real, right? It'd be like God loving, you know, a little toy, right? Um, and, and so he wanted a human that would choose to love him as well, just like um, Nate said earlier with his marriage, they both chose. And God wanted us to have that choice. So unfortunately, because that's the nature of the universe, uh, this allows sin to be part of the world that we live in. And so there's evil because God loves us, and he wants us to love him back, and he wants to have a relationship with us. So the answer really is there's evil because God wanted a relationship with us, and that's unfortunately some people chose to reject it. Alright, good question. If you believe in God, if you believe in God and live a faithful life at one point in time, but return to living in sin and being unfaithful, can you lose your salvation? Oh, can I do that? <laughs> <laughs> I like this because, well, I did it. Um, <laughs> No, I didn't lose my salvation. So I um, became a Christian at 11. Um, but at one point, I decided I liked sinning better. I thought it was more fun to live in sin. And that was the way I should go. I still believed that God was real, His way was true, and all that. But I really didn't like it. I wanted to do my own will. And... Um, but what happens is that when you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit into your life. And he lives in your body. Your body becomes a holy temple. And um, at that point, he can never leave you. And that's the new covenant that um, Jesus brought. So when I just um, realized like how awful my life was going without God, um, you know, I, I didn't have to be saved again because I was already saved. Uh, Jesus had already cleansed me of my sins by dying on the cross. And, but the key part to me coming back to Christ was that I needed to repent and choose his ways again and choose him and let him work and live my life. All right, new question. I like this question. There are currently over 9,000 recognized religions in the world. There are at least 20 deities, gods, spiritual figures, etc., that existed before Christ and seemed to be the exact inspirations for his story. Knowing these facts, how can you be sure that Christianity is right? Students, students are also what it is. Keep it short. Well, first of all, um, when God refers to himself in the creation story, he, he talks about um, being the God who is and who was. And he talks about himself in a plural position, which means... He, God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit have all existed in the Trinity um, for all time. Alpha and Omega with beginning and end. Uh, the God had three and one. Um, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> Secondly, okay. Uh, 
Christianity and any other religion you will find on the face of this earth is that Christianity is uniquely um, a faith in which the offended God, the, the great almighty deity, sacrificed himself in order to have a relationship with the people once more. In every other religion you will search out, no matter by what means, uh, if you believe in karma or if you believe in reincarnation or whatever, it's about deeds and it's about earning your way to God or to to absolute perfection and whatever. But in our religion, in our faith, which I, I hate to even portray as religion, um, God, the almighty offended deity, came down and was like, I love you enough to pay this price for you. And that's what makes Christianity the most unique thing, the, the idea of grace. And I would say too, from, a, from just like a logical perspective, the Bible is the only religious text ever that is okay. That that is um that is historically accurate. I mean, you look at religious texts all over. Look at the Book of Mormon. It says that there were Hebrew tribes inhabiting all of North America. We've never found one Hebrew artifact in North America. And when they do DNA and, and linguistics, they find that none of them match. Uh, the, the deal with the Bible is it talks about real cities, real places, real people, real events that are all corroborated with archaeology and with, and with history. Uh, you look at it, it's scientific merits. It's scientifically valid, guys. The Bible talks about radioactive decay, 2 Peter 3, 10, 2,000 years ago. This is hardcore. It's a textbook definition for radioactive decay. And it talks about the expansion of the universe. You know, we found that out in the 50s. It goes on and on and on about scientific facts that modern science has confirmed. It is prophetically accurate. No other religious texts are prophetically accurate. I mean, it just doesn't happen. You know, you look across the board, and I mean, they, they just aren't. They, most of them make prophetic predictions, but very few of them are verifiable. The Bible, I mean, it said that Cyrus would rebuild Jerusalem 100 years before Cyrus was born, 100 years before Jerusalem was destroyed. And I mean, it mentions him by name. It says that Jesus would die by crucifixion 1,000 years before crucifixion was even invented. I mean, the prophetic claims in the Bible are so solid that it cannot be, I mean, you cannot just negotiate it or, or explain it away. And even the book of Daniel prophesies about Alexander the Great in such detail that critics for the past century said that it was post-written history, that somebody after Daniel wrote it, or after Alexander the Great wrote it and said it happened before, until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1948, and they predate Alexander the Great, which shows that that prophecy which is so insanely accurate, happened before he was ever born. So you look at it, it's historically accurate, it's prophetically accurate, it's scientifically, and that's just scratching the surface. You could go on and on. So I'd say compare them. If God is God and he's speaking through a religious text, his text should stand out from the rest. And I don't see anything that compares. Alright, here's a one, one person answer. What does it mean to be a Christian? <laughs> I talk so much. I know, I talk so much.
and just let him lead you. Um, for me, as we just talked about, um, Christianity is is not about following rules or a religion or being a certain way or acting a certain way or being a certain person. It's simply it's simply about um, having a relationship with God through uh, the grace of Christ, and that's all there is to it. That's what Christ taught. Um, we turn it into a religion, but that's not what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a follower of Christ. Literally, that's what the word means. And so, it's really just about having a relationship with Christ. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is icing on the cake. All right, are we in the last days? Is Obama symbolizing one of the horsemen? I saw this question in there, and I asked him to take it out and ask it, because this is something I, I have been thinking about prophecy for like two, three years now. And honestly, if you think about it, every day you wake up, you're one day closer, right? One day. And so that's just one thing to keep in mind, that we, and uh, God, and uh, Jesus even talks about this in, um, in like Matthew 24, 25 about how we don't know when the last days are going to be, but we can, uh, but knowing that he's coming should spur us on to tell other people about him. So that's, that's, that's the main thing. So yes, we probably are in the last days because we're one day closer. You know, every day is the last day. <laughs> Ever since the beginning, it's the last day. Um, and then if you also think, of, and, um, in accordance to Obama, but if you're thinking about like the horseman as in the Antichrist, we don't know who he is yet. But and there are some things that we can be looking for. But to call some, but you need to be careful when you try to pin somebody down as that's judging. Yeah, that's you know like putting judge on other people. And so you know you need to be careful on who you are looking out for. So. Uh, yeah, I can answer real quick. Uh, uh, if you want to turn to Matthew 24, Jesus was asked, when, what will be the signs of the times? And he lists seven signs. And uh, it starts with earthquakes, famines, wars, rumors of wars, and things like that, which are all taking place and have taken all, all place throughout history. But he said when these things are all happening at the same time, the very last one, he said, before the end will come, the whole world will hear the gospel. Every single person. Everybody. And we're not there yet. If you want to look at the world and people hearing the gospel across the world, um, we're getting there. We're, it's uh, Many of these Christian organizations that send missionaries all over the place believe we're about 20 to 25 years away from reaching the entire world with the gospel multiple times. So we're not there in terms of the last sign yet. And that's one of the reasons we're here. To see if we can encourage the last sign to get there. Uh, and no matter what your political views are, um, really, no matter what they are, the Bible talks about supporting our leaders, um, about God appointing rulers and authorities. And in 1 Timothy 2, it says, I urge them, first of all, to request prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So, no matter where you stand, like, we're still called to pray for those in authority, which includes Barack Obama, no matter where you stand on that. Good point. Does everybody in the world who has, is, and will live hear the gospel or about God, and what verses do we have about that? I'll throw another one. 
Um, Russ, Russ had just mentioned one, another one that David also mentioned in the previous question was that um, Jesus will, um, Jesus says he'll draw a man into him when he's lifted up. Um, and that can be interpreted in a number of ways, but one way is thinking he was lifted up on the cross, right? Am I, am I saying this right? Yeah, that's right. So it says that in the next verse, it's, it's pretty obvious. Um, so he says he'll draw a man into him. How that'll happen, it could happen through the, the words of our mouth, it could happen through some miraculous supernatural way. Um, talked to Nate sometimes, got a great story about that from this uh, trip into Paul, right? And um, so, again, it says um, God doesn't desire anybody to go to hell. And he, wants, he created this child with love, so I didn't want something to do with him. So he's going to make it possible for them to know the gospel in one way or another. All right, here's one question. I think we've already kind of answered it, but um, you guys can let me know. Colossians 3.18, my Christian friend and I got into an argument the other day about the role of man and wife. She says that man and women are equals and that the Bible was old-fashioned and isn't applicable to today. But I believe that she's wrong and that while they may be equal, men have a little more... little more... little more and have final say in a controversy with their wife. Who's right? Any good verses to look up? First of all, I wanted to say that as a Christian, in an argument, you're generally always wrong. And I don't mean that as in a logical sense, but when we get into like heated debates with other people, either even if you are completely right, you have every fact that can back it up, most likely you just turn someone away from the gospel. They're less likely to listen to what you have to say because you've turned them away. Because a lot of times when people lose a debate or they sit arguing with someone, they no longer have any incentive to listen to that person anymore. So that's kind of my first say on that. Anyone? have a single person answer that. Yeah. Why not a married wife? <laughs> Does he go married? No, I'm married to him. Um, Ephesians 5.22 um, talks about what marriage should look like. And uh, before we talk about that, like, there's lots of verses that say wives submit to your husbands, and I thought it was really cool. Nate was just sharing with us before Connect tonight how that word submit means like joining together to fight like the same battle. It was a military term used in the Greek, and I thought that was really cool. But I also think if you read Ephesians 22, it says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the, head, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might, be, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself to the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And then it keeps going. So husbands ought also to love their wives, their own wives, as their as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. And um, and then there's another verse that talks about um, like if a husband doesn't love his wife, God's not going to hear his prayers. And what verse is that? 1 Peter 3.7 is that verse. Um, but I think that the important thing like as women to see here is that God's definitely given husbands and wives we're equal, but he's given different roles. And I think that um, that's really important to see like um, husbands are created to be the head of the household, but I think that in some ways that's a blessing for wives because, like, with Chris and I, like, if he is the head, he's the head of our marriage, and if he makes, 
a decision, and and I, um, I mean, I, I definitely can voice my opinion and we discuss it. <laughs> but if if for some reason in the end, if something was wrong with that decision, like I, I kind of see it as a covering for me, like. He was the leader, like, I, <laughs> which, I mean, like, it's just kind of a blessing and a protection for me as a wife, and also, for him, like, um, there's this whole thing with men and women, it just our natural roles, I think, that we take, like, um, and that's kind of laid out, like, just throughout the New Testament and how marriage is supposed to be, and how Christ and the church, like, if you look at how Christ loves the church, and then how we respond, and we serve Him, and we we um, we give our lives obeying Him. But He gave His life out of love for us. Like um, I don't know. I guess that's the best way I can think of to describe it of just how that whole thing works. And it's just a response. And it doesn't mean that we're any less equal or anything like that. It means we are equal. It's just we have two completely different roles. And as men and women. We both represent different aspects of God's character. And so, like, I, thought, I just think it's cool, like, when you read about the husbands loving their wives, um, and it says that, uh, where's that? Okay. So, like, just as, I just totally lost it. But, like, men and women represent two different aspects of God's personality and his character, and that that comes out in marriage also in our responses to each other. And I have to say, from the husbands, we have to we we we're on the hook for a lot more, guys. We have to we have to lay down our lives, like Christ laid this down for the church. That means I die to myself every day to put Aaron first. That's a lot harder than me, girl. Then controversy doesn't like if it's a male a man like the wife. The man gets the final say. Um, I, you know, like I don't think that that's very much the case. I think that if, if your marriage is strong, very often you'll be on the same page. You know, okay. like, I could count on one think, hand the number of times where Aaron and I were really at odds, and usually the next day we were both asking forgiveness. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, the, there's the never been a situation. Like, there's so never been a situation a where you know. I think the husband, um, even let's say even he does have the final say, it says that he's supposed to serve his wife and love her, um, even to the point of death as Christ did the church. And so, <laughs> they forgive him. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so even, let's say even he does have the final say, and there was an argument that he has respect, basically he's just making the final decision. But it's not like it's for his benefit. He should be benefiting. His, his, what he says should be benefiting his wife, should be in serving his wife and his children. It should not be serving himself. It should be for the best of his wife and his children, not for himself. So even if he does have the final say like that, you know, the final stamp on, okay, this is the decision, then after we, um, that we've come to the conclusion, this is best for my family. Yeah, I think it all comes back to um, good communication. Like, whenever Kim and I are not communicating on the same page, we're both thinking two separate ways. And when two people that are supposed to be one are thinking two different ways, it just goes, things go wrong. And so the big importance, I think, is communication. Like, I need to be constantly speaking with her. She needs to be constantly speaking with me. And us together, we make a decision. But when it comes down to it, often um, the Bible talks about how I just place her uh, as a male, as a guy in a relationship, he's placing me as a leadership over our marriage. But I certainly am not. It, it is foolishness of me to not consider what her input is because we are still one body. And I essentially make one decision that's going to reflect on both of us. So 
some of that communication here, essentially. So, why do so many Christians abuse and molest indigenous people? Oh, can't about this, Ronnie. I'm sorry, you cannot talk. <laughs> um, from a native perspective, I something I dealt with very much so in church, like all of us are educated, care about the boarding schools and such, and I had a hard time dealing with this question as well, um, as being a native Christian. Um, I believe it comes to the main points that we live in a fallen world, everywhere you look, you know, everyone, we are all sinners. And second is that out of pride, you know, I, I believe a lot of um, what was done to indigenous people had to do with pride issues, um, convenience issues, and selfishness, you know? And so, um, for instance, when Europeans came over here to the U.S. and set up the boarding school systems, um, a couple of my peers and I are talking about this, I, I just believe that um, a lot of it has to do with just convenience, you know? Um, Man just wants everything to be the way they want it, out of selfishness. The Europeans wanted, you know, in that aspect, wanted um, indigenous people to be likewise, to be like them. So therefore, they tried to, out of um, selfishness and out of pride, try to make them the way they wanted them to. You know, like it's like molding, trying to build, um, trying to reburn, a, I would say, a pottery piece of pottery and trying to mold it into what it already is. You know. But um, it's just out of pride. We live in a fallen world, and but yeah, that's that's my second point. And second, you know, and then my other point aspect of it is that um, as Nate was just bringing, is that Christians, that's not showing God's love. Period. You know, Christ did not die on the cross for us to to pretty much um, just um, abuse others. He taught us that, you know, Christ died on the cross and that's a true image of love in itself. And and so in that aspect, we're not showing love when we abuse and then even the term molest others, you know, that's that's just not Christ's love at all because Christians are called to be like Christ and to um, glorify Christ. And he would obviously, this is, like, this is not glorifying him at all, you know. I'm sure you guys would all agree on that. So that's pretty much it. All right. How can we accept the Bible as wholly true? What about the Catholic Bible, other Gospels? Some Da Vinci Code, but I don't know. Anybody? Uh, I think I'd better do it. You can do it. I'll 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 do
to the accepted Old Testament, and that is the biggest argument against them. Alright, another question. How come at the beginning of Ecclesiastes it talks about how everything is useless, <laughs> specifically Ecclesiastes 2.11 and 1 Ecclesiastes? I just can't read. <laughs> specifically Ecclesiastes 2.11 and 1 2. That's fine. we got about like 10 minutes. Uh, well, we'll be really looking at those verses to be a little more specific. Uh, really quick, uh, Solomon was talking about um, the uselessness of the things of the world, right? And he came to the same conclusion in this book that Jesus um, stated um, uh, all over the Gospels, that he says um, no one is good in this world, only God is good, only things from heaven are good. Under this sun, which Solomon uses usually in times in that book, um, under the sun, in this world, on this physical earth, nothing is good, nothing is useful, nothing can bring you to God, only um, as you see the fulfillment of this through Christ, only uh, the death of Christ and His grace um, through that can connect us to a relationship with yeah. um, I had to do a big study on this in middle school, and one thing that I think Ronnie is exactly right, and um, two one says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself and behold, it too is futility. And I think like that right there is just showing like as Solomon, Solomon had decided to follow his own pleasures and his own desires and came to the conclusion that it was meaningless. And at the very end of the book he says, the conclusion when it all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act and judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And, um, and then he also says everything under the sun um, is meaningless compared to fearing God. Okay, we'll do a couple more. Um, do those who accept one God who will forgive their sins for following him suffer any hardship for not accepting Jesus? Do those who accept one God who will forgive their sins for following him suffer any hardship for not accepting Jesus? Um, so clearly it states that um, God is the only one. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Uh, no man comes to the Father but by me. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ and you don't have a relationship with him, um, then that relationship is with God, and God is the only God. And if you're not for God, then you're against God. So, yeah, I think that people who believe in a false God are going to be held accountable for that. Jews are still waiting for a Messiah to come. 
So in that manner, they're worshiping um, the God of the Old Covenant, but they're not keeping with his promises, which is a promise of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, which sets us free. And because of that, um, I would say that like, there's a story in reference, like not, not to Judaism, but to Jesus, in which um, a man was preaching of the one to come, and he was talking about Jesus, and he was corrected. Um, but lovingly, they were like, oh, you know a lot, but let us tell you more. And they talked to this man about Jesus and how he had come and how he had died and how he had resurrected. And all he knew was what John the Baptist had said. And so if someone's practicing Judaism in the manner that uh, their forefathers did thousands of years ago and just don't know about Jesus yet, they have just as much right to learn about Jesus as anyone else does. But if they're practicing Judaism in a manner of rejecting Jesus as, a, as the Messiah, as the one who saves us, then it's the same as practicing any other religion that would reject Jesus as the Messiah. All right, Mikhail also informed me that it talks a little bit more about this in Romans 10, 1 through 4, so you guys can look into that and investigate it for it. Why do we suffer and go through pain on earth just to return to heaven and just to return to heaven and either not recall or remember what we go through? What is the pain? What is the point to go through this pain? Keep that short. That, was, that topic was kind of hit, but. The Bible never says you won't remember what happened on this earth, and that this earth doesn't matter. So. Uh, that's it. That was the last one. No, we got more questions. We got a lot more questions. Okay, I, I said earlier also that, uh, you know, again, Jesus wanted a relationship with us, and so um, that's why he created a physical plan of existence, is to have children that he could have a relationship with. And so, unfortunately, again, like I said, in order for that to be real, we have to be able to reject it, which um, allowed people to enter the world and corrupted God's original intention. And so uh, he, he needed an escape plan, really, from this fallen world that we created, which is heaven. And so then our relationship will be restored that was originally intended. And also, you guys <laughs> Yeah. All right. Um, if you guys need to leave, go ahead and feel free to leave. Um, we're going to keep busting through. We just have a couple questions left if you guys want to stay. Um, yeah, you guys, I got a timer now, so now you guys are going to have to do it. Okay, here's a pretty, pretty in-depth one, I guess. Second Peter 3, 9. Does anyone got that one? Uh, <laughs> it says God is, is not slack. It's not like Peter's slack. He's patient with us, not wanting anyone do you know what John 6, 65 is? No. Okay, how about Romans 9.22? 9.22 is talking about... I got John 6.65. John 6.65. He, he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So we, we can add this. And yeah. specifically yeah. talked about that. Well, I haven't asked the question. What was Second Peter 3.9? <coughs> that God doesn't want anyone to perish. Okay, so even between those two, how does the Peter verse work with the three verses below without contradicting each other? Yeah. I, I think we did that. Don't see the contradiction. We, we hit that, yeah. We both have choice. And, um, yeah. Does that make sense? I don't know. Very scattered, but we'll believe it. Yeah. 
how can you know what real and genuine belief in Christ is? How do you put that into practice? Just real quick, because I think we've hit this here and there. Okay. We did talk a little bit. Uh, basically, okay, this is the first time. for being concise and my word choice. Uh-huh. Go. No, not that. <laughs> okay. Um, so basically the Holy Spirit comes into your life, He transforms it, and He works in you and changes you, not by your own power. John 10, 11, 16, 1 flock, 26. What about the foxes and wolves, those not of the flock? Verse 16. What does this say of the will of God in 2 Peter 3, 9? Okay. Alright, what about the foxes and the wolves, those not of the flock? What does this say of the will of God in 2 Peter 3, 9? Um, yeah, there are definitely foxes, and well, there are people that are not Christians right now, right? And there are people that definitely are not interested in a relationship with God right now. Uh, that doesn't mean they'll always be that way, right? And then, speaking figuratively, there's more than just people that are not interested in us continuing, right? You have an enemy, John 10. All right, um, do we baptize the dead? The Mormons do. The Bible is uh, just a proclamation of faith. Um, and I know passage, but you can The uh, passage you can look into is 1 Corinthians 15. I read that yesterday morning. All right, how do you find joy in brokenness? I think the joy in brokenness is realizing that as you're being broken, um, you're coming closer to God because he's humbling you and you're able to it, once you're broken I've been in that spot and once you're broken there's nothing left so why not give everything that you are to God and you're able to understand and see pieces of his character that you've never understood before you rely on him like you never have before and you love him like you never have before because he's all you have because you've become so broken and then out of that and you know that coming soon after that because he's the same yesterday today and forever you're going to be so much better, and you're going to be made whole, and you're going to have um, understanding of who he is and his, and, and his character beyond what you could ever imagine before um, you had to walk through your brokenness. Yeah, and he's close to the brokenhearted, which it says all through Psalms. Okay, I think this is the last question. So if I didn't get you guys' questions, I'm sorry, but I thought that I did get them all. So this one is specifically for Nate. I don't even know if I should read it. But if Ronnie said to Nate, Nate, I don't believe in God anymore, what would Nate's response be? <laughs> My response would be, I know you well enough to know you're joking, and I love you no matter what. Is there any other question? Do you have a question? Yeah. I don't want to hold everyone. No. Okay, if Jesus brought the new covenant and got rid of the old law, then what relevance does the Old Testament have? Ooh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, we did a whole study through Hebrews and a Bible study last year. 
which is the entire establishment of the, the New Covenant. Um, the purpose of the Old Testament is really like a measuring bar. So there's a thing called in construction, and it's called, uh, what's it called? <laughs> a, <laughs> a bob? Yeah, a plumb bob. So a plumb bob, you put it up against a wall, and it'll show you if that wall is, is level or not. It'll show you if it's straight up and down. In that way, the Old Testament showed us if we were right with God and showed us that we weren't. It didn't fix the fact that we weren't right with God. It just showed us that we weren't. See, what Jesus does is he comes in and he moves that wall straight. The Old Testament is our plumb bob. It's like, you're not right. But the New Testament is our carpenter. No pun intended. That puts us right with God. And so the purpose of the Old Testament is to bring the value to the, to the New Testament and to show us where we were at before Jesus Christ. Super quick. I, I swear. Just a real quick revelation I've come to this. Remember that Jesus said that um, he did not come to abolish the law to fulfill it, and I've always struggled a little bit with that. And something I've come to a revelation with is that he came to fulfill it in the sense that although rules may still apply to us, um, they're not uh, specific to our salvation. And that our, now it's not about our salvation following these rules, but rather um, building up other people, glorifying God, giving things to God and all we have. So the, the rules still exist, and they still apply to us, but now our, it's, a different, um, it's a different motivation for these rules, and glorifying God and serving those around us and living the best life we can for grace. Yes, ma'am? Nick. Um, <laughs> so, uh, does that mean that it's, we don't have to obey the law that says that it says somewhere in Romans and we're pretty sure it's in chapter 3 um, towards the end it says that for the sin is revealed through the law and I have to be real honest I didn't really hear the question but Nate told me to say it so that's what it says what was the question
Did you guys find this pretty useful tonight? Get some of your, your questions answered? Yeah, definitely. If you guys have more questions, stuff you want to ask privately, feel free to come up and talk to us after tonight. We have snacks in the back, so feel free to just hang out and hang out with some other people. All right, you guys enjoy your night. <laughs>